we went down there and we set up a booth and people came by and we're like, hey, you know, this is GitHub. It's the next generation of version control, easy branching, easy merging, distributed, offline, et cetera, et cetera. And they're like, wow, this looks amazing. I'm like, okay, well, yeah. So you go to the website, github.com, and you click on sign up. And then you sign up and they're like, whoa, 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 stop. Just stop right there. We were building a product for ourselves and we knew what features we needed as developers. And so we thought if we can build what we need, then this will apply to people throughout the industry. You're listening to the Enterprise Ready Podcast, a show aiming to change the enterprise software narrative from how to sell to enterprises to how to build for enterprises. We'll interview industry experts and enterprise software founders as we break through the jargon, establish a common vernacular, and share the lessons learned from building the world's best enterprise software. Hi, I'm Grant Miller, creator of Enterprise Ready and founder and CEO of Replicated, where we power the world's best enterprise software. The Enterprise Ready podcast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. In this episode, we interviewed Tom Preston Warner, founder and former CEO of GitHub and current CEO of Chatterbug. We mainly focus on Tom's time at GitHub, where he built and scaled one of the most important developer tools companies in the world. However, many might not realize that GitHub is also one of the most successful enterprise software companies of the modern era, with over half of their revenue coming from large enterprise deals. Hey, Tom, thanks for joining. Hey, Grant, how you doing? I'm really good. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. One of the most amazing, you know, guides for replicated and enterprise ready, like everything that you've, you know, talked about and the conversations that we've had over the last three or four years. You know, most listeners won't know this, but you really helped inspire everything that we built at Enterprise Ready, and we wrote and helped create and really helped us synthesize the thesis around what it takes to enable software companies to distribute to the enterprise. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad to have been a part of it. I think getting software ready for the enterprise is something that still is extremely painful, very complicated. And I really hope that nobody has to go through it the way that we did at GitHub. It was painful. It was a learning experience. A lot of that learning experience you passed on to me and we used and we tried to build into products and writing and everything else. So hopefully what we can do here today is expose some of that same knowledge for the rest of the world so that everybody can hear the things that you learned along the way and the challenges that you faced and then hopefully make their products better and easier to integrate with different enterprise systems. So you know, I mentioned your background earlier, but would love to just sort of hear in your words, how did you get into enterprise software what was the career trajectory that took you into it? And then how did you first sort of figure out you were actually building enterprise software? Yeah, I guess it was kind of by accident in that all of GitHub was sort of by accident. GitHub is really the first enterprise software that I've worked on. And it didn't start out as enterprise software. It started out as a SaaS model. It was, you go to the website, you'd sign up, you'd have your user and you'd share some repositories. And you know, it started really small. It was just a, a side project, really, when it got started. I guess the turning point really was a couple of years in, we went to a PHP conference and we had an exhibiting booth there. I think it was like a ZendCon or something. It was down in San Jose. We drove down there, the four of us founders, and we set up a booth. We got like some booth stuff. Did you know that you have to pay for carpet when you have an exhibition booth? You have to pay for carpet. It's amazing. And electricity. I did not know that. Yeah. So this is something that you'll learn if you're going to go down there and you want to advertise to the enterprise in an exhibit booth. You pay for everything. Keep that in mind. But we, we went down there and we set up a booth and people came by and we're like, hey, you know, this is GitHub. It's uh, version control. It's the next generation of version control, easy branching, easy merging, distributed, offline, et cetera, et cetera. And they're like, wow, this looks amazing. You know, I really could use this at my company. It sounds way better than what we're using. How do I do it? We're like, okay, well, yeah. So you go to the website, github.com, and you click on sign up. And then you sign up and they're like, whoa, 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 stop. Just stop right there because I'm an enterprise. I work for an enterprise and we don't do that kind of stuff. We need something that's on-prem or, or it's not going to work. So we're like, okay, keep us in mind for the future. <laughs> uh, and this happened over and over throughout the day or the couple of days that we went down there. We heard it a lot. We heard it constantly. It was probably a third or a half of people that would come by. It ended up, we were just like, well, thanks for coming by. There's nothing that we can do for you. And so on the car ride back up to San Francisco, I remember talking about it with the guys and we were like, should we be doing something in the enterprise? Because this seems like a lot of people 
that we can't have as customers. They can't use our product. They need it on-prem. They need something installable. Should we work on it? And this was only a couple of years into GitHub. We were still very small, probably six people, seven people at the time. How many users do you think you had at that point? I mean, we had thousands of users at the time, but paying users would have been, I honestly don't remember. It wasn't like a huge number, but it felt like we had something that people were using. They loved it. They were paying for it. Getting people to pay for GitHub was never a problem. It just, you don't think that in none of those early customers that were using it and signing up online or seeing it on different, you guys are pretty involved in the Ruby community, none of that ever surfaced this idea that you needed to have a private instance that it could be deployed into an enterprise data center. No, it was the kind of the first time that we ever saw requests for it was at this conference where enterprise people were. The thing is, we were big in the Ruby community, like you said. Enterprises weren't really using Ruby back then. It was still fresh enough. It was like Twitter was the biggest thing that was using it, and Twitter wasn't even that big at the time. And so that was our crowd. That was the people that we hung out with. Those were the people that were noticing what we were doing and coming to sign up. And so it wasn't really the enterprise types that were ending up on GitHub trying to do something and then being like, oh, I can't do this. Let me email someone about it. Either they, they just weren't there or they didn't want to go through the hassle of sort of requesting it. Now, we did eventually have people that worked in larger companies use GitHub, but they just used it the normal way through SaaS, and they would do it under the radar, or maybe their division would approve it, and they could use it in the SaaS model for just their division. Shadow IT, as the industry has started to call it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, people want to get things done. Developers want to use the best tools, and they'll find a way. It's like life. They'll always find a way. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff Goldblum. And so, <laughs> but that made it easy to then transition into the enterprise as more and more developers started using it personally and in shadow IT, that they could come to us later on when we started adding more large organization features. You know, we went a long time before we added organizations and you had to, like the way that you would deal with teams was to just, one person would have an account under their own name and then they would add collaborators to a repository and then other people could work on it. And it wasn't a great way to manage those users. And so we eventually added organization, an organization plan that had different pricing and features to accommodate larger teams. And then we helped people transition to that new plan we grandfathered everyone in that would want to do it, and then people could upgrade, essentially, to the team plan, to the organization plan, and then they would pay more to get those extra features. Right, so creating a little bit of product assortment there in terms of using you know, that team-type functionality as a way to differentiate between individual contributors maybe working on personal projects and companies where they really had large teams of software developers who were all going to be collaborating on multiple different projects. Yeah, exactly. And these people would also want like a separate billing contact, right? Here's something we found out early on. It's like when you've got a company that wants to buy a plan, they want to have someone who can pay for it that's not a developer. The developers often don't have access to a credit card, a company credit card to pay for it. So then they're like, hey, let me get my billing person on here. And so it's like, okay, now the organization plan has to also have a billing address and contact that is separate from any of the developers. And so that's attached to the account. And what permissions do they have? What can they do? So we added a lot of those things that we discovered just through people abusing the system and finding a way to solve their problems with the existing tool set that we had. We always would try to figure out what people were doing and then solve the problems that they had. And that was kind of the name of the game throughout as we approached all of the enterprise problems. We'd take it from that approach. We were really learning what enterprises needed at the time, right? Like I said before, I hadn't ever made software for enterprises. I had no idea what features they wanted. And you weren't pulling in product managers from CA or Oracle that had built enterprise software before, or even spending time with folks that had done it. Like, so you were kind of finding the problem, like, hey, we need roles and permissioning, and then trying to solve it from scratch. Is that right? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, we never, we didn't hire executives in the normal way. We didn't do any sort of executive searches until after we took Series A money, the Andrews and Horowitz money. After that, we hired our CFO, and that became our sort of first proper executive hire. You know, we really were trying to solve problems in a different way. We were trying to do management in a different way. We were trying to do everything in a different way. And so we did have the advantage that we were building a product for ourselves. We were all developers. 
most of the company, you know, we hired people that were not developers, but everyone in the company learned how to use GitHub and used it to collaborate, even if it was on blog posts or even things like accounting. Some of those things would go through GitHub. All the conversations would happen on GitHub as much as possible. We did through GitHub. So we were building a product for ourselves and we knew what features we needed as developers. And so we thought if we can build what we need, then this will apply to people throughout the industry, no matter what language they're writing and whether they're enterprise or not, as far as it comes to the core product. And then as we had people that became interested in using GitHub in the enterprise, then they would say, okay, well, you have an on-prem solution, which originally was called GitHub FI, which stood for firewall install. I don't know. I don't know why we didn't just call it GitHub Enterprise from the very beginning, but we thought GitHub FI sounded cool. And, uh, and that was designed to be installed behind your firewall, which is why it was called that. And it was really hard. It was really hard to, to develop the way that we initially started developing it, which we can talk about. Uh, I have some advice whether you should have two separate code bases that you stream code from the SaaS model into the enterprise model and such. But yeah, we were, we were just we're working from first principles. That's how we built the company, from first principles. Everything. We, we questioned everything. We questioned how you built enterprise software. We actually started with a company called Bitrock. They had something that allowed you to kind of package up your stuff and make an installer. And we used it for a little while. That was the very first way that you could install GitHub in an enterprise. And it obfuscated code and it had some features that were kind of nice, but they just weren't flexible enough. We couldn't get done what we wanted to get done quickly enough. And because we were driven so much by first principles, we wanted to do things differently. So some of the decisions that they made were not decisions that we wanted to make. So we eventually went off of that solution and we, we wrote our own, which we were... We wrote a lot of our own solutions at the time. So much software didn't exist 10 years ago that is commonplace now that we ended up writing a lot of our own solutions. Sure. And when you think about sort of that first principles approach, I think it's a really interesting perspective to take because I don't think anyone had done that for enterprise software prior to GitHub. And ultimately, you know, I think that replicated in our customers and anyone that's read Enterprise Ready has benefited a lot from the first principles thinking that you did at that point, because it helped inspire a lot of the patterns that I think became adopted within the industry. Now, some of the things, you know, I think we can look back on and debate if it's the the right choice, right? Like I always think about the GitHub sort of user-centric model versus org-centric model where, you know, your GitHub handle kind of lives with you no matter where you go. Why did you guys do that to begin with? Is that just how it started and you decided to keep it that way versus like, hey, you have a different, you know, user account for every org that you're a part of, you know, for your work or for open source or something else? I guess it it just felt like the right decision. Are you Are you talking about specifically that you have... The, like the URL structure, where it's like github.com slash username slash project, as opposed to slash project slash something, and there's like users that belong. No, I, so I think about it as I have maybe three different Google accounts, right? My personal Gmail, I used to have a side project Gmail, and then I would have a work Gmail, right? And these are all things that I would sign into now called G Suite, and I would have you know a separate account for each one of those different organizations or projects. And I could be logged into all of them at the same time and toggle between them, but they were different accounts. And right. Dropbox now has this concept of you can have a personal account and a work account. They still only do two. But GitHub has always sort of been, other than your GitHub Enterprise user account, which would be totally separate, if you use the SaaS product, that user joins a you know an org joins a company and then gets access to everything. And so it's user-centric versus organization-centric. I don't log in to github.com is granitreplicated.com. I log in with grantlmiller at gmail.com. Right. I mean, part of it's that we just started in a way that was much more user-centric. And this was a very specific decision, which was counter to how, I think, very specifically SourceForge did it. So before GitHub, SourceForge was a common place to put stuff. If you remember, SourceForge had projects as the primary bit in the namespace. And so you'd create an open source piece of software on there. And that would take up sourceforge.com slash whatever that name was. And this is probably going to be a bit of history for many people listening to this and, and new developers today. But 
on SourceForge, when you created a project, you couldn't just create a project. You had to propose and request the creation of a project, after which SourceForge administrators would then approve said project before you could do anything with it. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. And this just felt like complete madness to us. It was like, why do they get to decide what software you can put up there? And part of the problem was that they had a scarce resource, which was these top-level project names. And so we were like, well, if we make the user be the primary, then that's a natural namespace and you can put all your stuff underneath there and everyone gets their own stuff. And a hundred people can have a repository named the same thing because it's all scoped by their username. And then you don't have to request permission anymore. So yeah, this was, I think this was life-changing for people. They could go to GitHub and they'd be like, I can just create as many repos as I want. Like I don't have to have permission to create a repository. Like This is life-changing. Yeah, I wouldn't have realized that that was such a problem. But yeah, but you're right. That's looking back on it. I get a notification for every new repo that we create. And there's two or three a week just within the 15 developers we have. And so I imagine going and trying to get permission for those things would just be a nightmare. Yeah, it, it was. And it really, it brought open source software to a level of, it made it too important. It was like, your project has to be the real deal. You know, it has to be a serious project to be on SourceForge because it's going to take up a whole namespace and you got to get approval and it's got to be legit. And I think after GitHub, then people were like, hey, we can share anything. It could be stuff that people care about or not. It's just code. It's all just code. So we tried to make it a little bit more irreverent that people didn't see bits of code as so holy, as so important that they could be small, unimportant things. And so that reliance on users as the primary factor were just, I mean, it just felt natural. It was like, okay, you have a user on GitHub and you can put code up and you can collaborate on code and you always do it through your username because guess what? There's only one of you. And so why do you need different personas? You're just a person working on code and that code might be in different places and you may or may not have access to that code. So like, why would we make you create separate accounts to do it? And I think... If you look at your own behavioral patterns, when you go to use some Google property and you try to go to it directly or you click on something from an email or something, and it, you know, I use a program called Mailplane, and when I click on a link to a Google document or something, it takes me over to my browser. And let me tell you, the number of times that it, it's already on the correct Google user is almost zero. I almost always struggle with Google's login thing. It's always chosen the wrong person. I'm always like having the wrong permissions. And it's infuriating. And places like Slack do this as well. It's like, go and try to log into your Slack account on a specific one. It's like, oh my God, I have like 12. And I have to remember, you know, my one password is just littered with Slack logins. It's like, I'm just, I'm one person. Either I have access to a room or I don't. I, it doesn't have to be that complicated. I think every service should be you have one user and you have access control. I don't know why you need to have a separate user for every use case. It makes me crazy. I love this topic because I think it's a really interesting, it's a foundational decision that you make when you're building a company, right? Like this is the the data structure around your user table, right? Like to change this inside of something that's around for a few years basically becomes impossible, right? And so like those early decisions you make sort of set the course. And it's I, I love hearing your perspective that you would love to see everyone take a user-centric perspective and then use permissioning in order to grant or deny access. Yeah, that's true. Now, that's it's not all rosy. There is one downside to that approach, to the GitHub approach, and that is it makes it difficult when you're talking about notifications, email notifications right now they're generally going to go to one address. And so it's like, do you choose your personal address? And now you've got a bunch of work stuff going to your personal address. Um, and how do you divvy those up? That to me is the one downside. If you want to solve that well, then you come up with a system where you're saying, okay, well, this repository now notifies this email address and stuff. So it's a sticky solution. I'm not saying, I guess now that I think about it a little bit more, it's not so clear cut. And the notifications problem is the biggest one that would drive you to say, use a different email address for each thing and then we'll know where to send notifications for that thing but at the same time like i'm still one person yeah and it feels like one of those problems that someone could solve first principles again and go back because i, I you're right i don't think that any of the existing implementations out there if we break down how github does it how google does it how dropbox or slack none of these are actually the perfect implementation and so this is exactly where that first principle is thinking and going back to like, hey, well, what are we trying to actually accomplish here? And like, what are the challenges? And now that you have so many examples and points from which you can draw from, I think 
someone could build a, a very eloquent version of this. Yeah, I think there's there's a solution. Maybe it's just not commonly practiced. I don't know what the perfect solution is. All I know is that I have a lot less trouble getting to what I want to get to on GitHub than I do on anything else. Mm -hmm. Sure. When you build software, when you think about these features, right, do you draw inspiration from other products? Do you look at other, like what other people have done and say like, oh, that's that's beautiful. I really love what they've done there and the, the implementation that they've done to this mundane problem. Um, we didn't do a ton of that at GitHub. Like I said, we we're really focused on first principles. So we kind of tried to think through everything fresh. And so we weren't using a lot of reference material. Like software is way better today. I think back to 10 years ago at the quality of tooling that was available. And it's, it's light years ahead today as it was before. And I think there's, there are a lot of good examples today of patterns that people are using for all kinds of different things. We just, we had this idea that we could do it differently, that we could do it better if we thought about things from scratch. And I think in a lot of ways, we did do better. We wanted to build something great for ourselves. And we said, what should it look like? If we build a, an issue tracking system, what should it look like? And it ended up looking like several different things throughout the history of GitHub. Now that I'm thinking about it, the first version of GitHub Issues did kind of look like Gmail in a way. It had a, an interface that was reminiscent of an email client because that was a nice way to go through things and you could classify issues and stuff. So there were some patterns around email. I think Gmail has had an amazing interface for many years and they continually improve it. And I just, I, I love the work that they do on that product, which is shocking for me to say about a Google design product because I'm not usually a huge fan of their, of their UI, but I think they really do a great job with email. I mean, at least for me, it works really well. So uh, yeah, I, we did take some inspiration. I guess Gmail is my is my, my shining light of inspiration in some of the early GitHub days. But the interface changed a lot since then. I think we realized that it wasn't necessarily the right model for issues. Sure. And so if you're really taking a first principles approach to a lot of these different features, most of your perspective is to build for yourselves. When it comes to features that you weren't really building for yourselves. Let's think about the on-prem installer or role-based access control or reporting, stuff that you wouldn't necessarily want in a product, but your customers were asking for, these enterprises were asking for. What was the process around discovery and initial implementation and feedback? Who was involved? How were you doing customer interviews and things like that? Or what was that process overall? Um, I, you know, it was, again, it was, it was like, okay, you need auditing. Auditing was something that we heard a lot from enterprise clients. They're like, we need to know when someone gets access to a repository, when they lose access to it, who's downloaded what, who's cloned stuff. This was really valuable from a forensics perspective. So we, we'd listen. We'd just, we'd talk to the customers. We'd say, okay, you want to use GitHub Enterprise, but you need assurances that you can trace certain things. So we get a list. It's like, okay, well, tell me what things you care about. Like, what is it that's driving that need? What do you need to do? And then they'd say, okay, well, we need to do forensics on what happened. Like, if we learned that some code was leaked, we need to be able to trace back and see exactly who had access to that code and where, when that code moved across certain boundaries. And so we'd say, okay, what else? And say, well, we also need then the ability to easily remove someone from all of the organizations throughout the whole site when they quit or we fire them and say, okay, well, that's, that's like, that's like, but you know, but they want to integrate it with their LDAP or their active directory or something like, okay, all right. So you want, you want something that'll integrate. Okay. With, you know, a single sign on kind of thing. Okay. What else? You know, and we just, we just keep asking like, what do you need to solve the problems that you have? And so instead of really trying to make them spec out the solution for us, it was more, tell us, your needs. What's lacking for you? What do you need in order to be comfortable with the software and to and to actually use it? And what we usually find is once we start asking that, it ends up being a pretty small set of things that most organizations would ask for straight away. They were usually comfortable without having everything that they wanted, as long as there was a plan for us to have it eventually. And that we weren't going to say, oh, we are antithetical to that need. We'll never do it. If they heard that, then they might say, okay, well, this the product isn't going to work for us because this is something that we need eventually. But if it was on our roadmap and we weren't going to say we weren't ever going to do it, then we could make them pretty happy. So that's something I think for people who are building enterprise software that's important to know is even when an enterprise sends you some ridiculous requirements list that's like, here's a 200-page document, 
you need to satisfy all of these checkboxes for us to, to buy your product. Like that's something that they'll send to every vendor. And then you go through it with your team and you're like, wow, we, <laughs> we don't do any of this. This is all, I don't even know what this one means. <laughs> right. And, uh, Neither do they. And so you go, so. I think that's that's the thing with these documents is they collect over time and they're usually defensive. Like these big organizations have been around for so long that they've had all of these problems at some point. And so every time they have a problem, they add it to their list of things that they need to defend against. And so even things that only happen extremely rarely, that almost never happen, it's on the list. And you don't know the relative importance of a thing that they need all the time or a thing that they almost never will need. You have no idea which ones are which. And so what we would do is we'd get in a, in a meeting with whoever was deciding. It's like, okay, here's this list. We'll, we'll look at it. But we're, like, it's pointless for us to just say what we do and what we don't do because we know that that's not, that's not, the real, that's not really what you're after. So we try to get meetings with people that were decision makers, that would someone on the technical, the security side that was driving these requirements. And we'd sit down and we'd say, okay, so we do some of these. Here's the things that we do. These are fine. You've got all kinds of stuff in here that we don't do. What do you really need? Like, what are you scared about? And that would then bring up the conversation of, oh, yeah, we need this. Like, this is super important. We need traceability. That was generally the biggest one. So they're like, things will go wrong. And enterprises need to know who to blame. They need to trace it, right? And that's totally reasonable. They need, they need explanations. They need certainty. There's a lot on the line. When you're a big enterprise, you have a lot to lose, and so they need tools to mitigate those risks. And so we just we just ask them about it. We have a conversation, and sometimes it would take several conversations, and sometimes it would you know it would go back and forth. Sales, the enterprise sales cycle is is long, and they're used to it. But it's not written in stone. It's not just you must check all these boxes, or we can't do this. It's it's more. What do you really need now, and what can you wait for? And then you go on from there, and it, and it worked. Quite often, most people could use it. You know, it, usually it was the earlier enterprises, places like Zynga or someone, right, or, or Dropbox. You know, th- these these places that were startups not so long ago. Modern enterprises, yeah, they they they've evolved to become you know multi billion dollar companies, but only in the last few years. So they have a fairly modern approach to to software. Right, exactly, and so life is easier with them because they remember being startups. They're like, I remember the good old days of just using any tool we wanted on the web and we didn't care because we didn't have much to lose. They, they still remember the, the beauty and simplicity and ease of that, but now they have requirements. And, but at the same time, those were the people who were adopting GitHub in the enterprise. It wasn't these 100-year-old companies knocking down the door to try to get GitHub. It was going to take them longer. So, and that was fine. So like, you take the, the low-hanging fruit and you solve the problems that they have, which are not going to be as stringent as the problems of bigger enterprises. So you can start small. You start with the smaller ones that are willing to take more risk and, and you keep building the features. Or this is what we did. Now with, with someone like you guys comes along, then it's like, wow, we can already, like, we just integrate a few of these things and we can meet most of these requirements without having to build everything. And that, like, that's, that's a beautiful thing. That shortcutting of that process to tick those boxes and just be like, oh yeah, Replicated does that. Oh, you want auditing? Replicated does that. Oh, you want LDAP or Active Directory? You know, we can integrate that easily, and, and now we can do that. Right? It took us years to build that stuff. Yeah, we've always just tried to think about what are the common services that enterprise software companies need, and then how can we help build a really great version of those? You know, and make it easy for both the vendor and the enterprise IT admin to consume and integrate. So, you know, and again, a lot of that inspired by GitHub, like we looked at GitHub Enterprise and we said, wow, this is an incredible experience for installing, you know, a piece of like what would be considered on-prem software, which to the rest of the world had been, you know, dead and legacy for 15 years. And we were like, no, this is like a really great way to give this unique experience to a, to someone who's often ignored. And, you know, you could just tell that there was actual attention to detail put into the implementation that you guys did. And so we wanted to make it so that any piece of software could be delivered that way. Because ultimately, the thing that you're talking about, which is like go to these early, early modern enterprises, right? We think that more and more, like companies of all sizes, you know, have 
requirements around security and you know single sign-on is no longer just done throughout app and active directory but there's services like okta and ping that are using saml and you know sso is easy to manage you know how your users log in you know at employee size of 50 right like managing separate user tables and shared passwords is a terrible security practice across the board you know and sometimes people are using the same password so you know implementing something like saml so that people can access your application is a huge boon for the security of the of the application. So, you know, I think a lot of times the early web applications and early SaaS products that were available, you know, it seems like this, you know, we kind of look back with rose-colored glasses and say, oh yeah, it was just so easy, but like realistically, it was also, you know, that's what was causing sort of routine and simple data leaks and breaches was just your vendors sometimes weren't nearly as secure as they should have been, right? I mean, there were like early GitHub competitors, I think, that you know had breaches and lost data and other issues too. So yeah, it's like these are these are real needs. And we wanted like we wanted to serve these enterprise customers, these developers. So we'd always think about the developers that we could serve, that we could get using GitHub, that we could give access to this tool that we thought was so amazing, if only we could make it so that the enterprises could actually purchase it. Right, so that was the that was what we really wanted at the end of the day, was for more engineers, more developers, more everyone to be using GitHub if they wanted to use it. And in order to do that, we had to meet the needs of the enterprises. And but at the same time, like that's its own product. You know, we thought of we thought of everything as a product, of everything as an engineering task. The way that we we changed the website if we needed to do something with ops to change around settings on machines or whatever was always imagined as a, as an engineering product. It was always written up. It was always understood. And it was always meant to be easy to use, which is where a lot of our chat ops stuff came from was like, we love chat. We love being a distributed company. How can we use these tools we're already using to make deployment easier, to make troubleshooting easier? Like when there was an outage of any sort, you go into our chat room and you could type a few commands and you get all the graphs from all of the analytics that we kept on all of the servers. It was just this mentality of productizing everything, of, of making everything a good experience. And that was the same for all of the enterprise installation stuff. It was designed. It was, it was easy to do. It was easy to, to upgrade from any version to any future version, which was another thing that like, we thought would become a nightmare. When you have enterprises and everyone has potentially a different version, how do you how do you get them to upgrade? Do they have to like upgrade individually through every version and then every installer is only a single version upgrade and then they have to do like 50 upgrades if they're a little behind? You know, we had something that was originally based on Vagrant and it could it would know how to go from any version to any version because it was just a sequence of operations each on top of the last. And so we really tried to think again from first principles about how would you design an installation experience that was enjoyable, that was usable. I don't know that, that that really existed at the time. And certainly nobody was thinking about, like, how do we delight the installers of enterprise software? I mean, most enterprise software wasn't even designed for the end user. It was designed to be sold to the purchaser, and that was it. It was like, a, it was like meet the needs of the... Shelfware. Right, meet the needs of, 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 uh, of middle managers who don't know what they're doing. That's kind of a pessimistic way to think about large organizations, but... It doesn't lend itself to the people who actually touch the product, which are the the tech, the ops people who are installing it, and the and the ops people who are maintaining it. Like a lot of those features aren't just installation; it's stuff that happens afterwards. Like, how do you get logs from the enterprise installation to the company to like GitHub? Right? You know, people would install GitHub behind their firewall, but it would be completely locked off. That was requirement number one: no bits can be transferred between these two entities unless they're auditable. And so something would go wrong and we'd be like, okay, can we, can we like SSH into your server and check it out? And they'd be like, "Mm -mm, no way it's not happening. And so we had to come up with a way to get knowledge of what was happening on their server so we could troubleshoot it without physically going to their building and signing NDAs and like sitting in a room with one of their ops people at a terminal to run commands while someone is looking over your shoulder, which we did do some of that. But that's not a real efficient way to do things. And so we, we created this log bundling tool that they could bundle up and then they could review it and then they could send that over. 
And so this is like, that's a product for ops people. Like they're customers too. They're the, they're the real ones who have to keep this thing running in their environment. And so it was just, it was just, we, we always imagined everything as a product. Yeah. I love that. I also love something you said a little bit earlier, which is you wanted to get GitHub that experience to more developers. And if you held your line and said, well, we're only going to do SaaS, then you would have been withholding this amazing product and amazing experience from millions of developers, right? And I love the idea that like, look, okay, I know these some of these requests are a bit onerous and we might not understand everything. And while some of them might be like super rational around, you know, security or secrecy, you know, like your instinct is to say, just trust us, we're going to do a great job, like just send us, you know, all of your source code, or, you know, oh, that's a stupid process, do it some other way. And the fact that you won had the empathy and said, no, we want the, the developers inside these organizations to be able to use GitHub. And then two, you said, okay, we want that so much that any of these like new requests and problems that, you, that these enterprises are having We'll just listen. We'll try to understand and actually not just put up and tell them, no, you're wrong. That's the wrong way to think about software. You'll use that information and say, okay, like what can we do to solve that problem in an amazing way that's solved by product and solved by this like, you know, great experience that we can then engineer? Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, we could have tried to force people to change. And organizations have changed some, and they'll often allow more SaaS products. But it's it might honestly be tipping the other way. Like in today's environment of security breaches, I mean, it's it's getting harder and harder to maintain security of everything. And if you if you have real security needs, extreme security needs, it can still make sense where you just you can't rely on some third party's ability to maintain security for their databases for their stuff and people's code is for many companies like that's very heavily guarded information i i could argue that most people are too paranoid about it well i I think the reason that they're probably guarded about the code is not necessarily that they think i mean some people think the ip is super valuable but generally it's about the potential vulnerabilities right so if someone has the source code and they don't disclose a vulnerability that they find then they have sort of this interesting access into your systems that maybe somebody else wouldn't have had without that source code. So it's just kind of a, they call it security in depth, right? And so adding that extra, you know, making it be a black box for them to be able to attack versus having all the source code to be able to attack, I think makes it a little bit easier. And, you know, obviously with open source code, you get the advantages of like the community is actually responsible for trying to maintain the security of the code and finding any of those, you know, patches and issues before bad actors do. So, yeah, I, I agree hundred percent, you know, and some organizations, they probably put credentials in their repositories and, you know, everyone has different ways of working and security. I mean, it's, it's huge. I, I don't mean to downplay that. It's just depending on the size of an organization, I think levels of paranoia can and should be different. And also depending on which piece of software it is, some are uh, could could stand to have more levels of paranoia. But it's always security is always a trade off between convenience and absolute security. And so, which way do you turn that knob? Do you want things to be easier for people to do, or things can be more secure at the expense of being a little bit harder to manage? Right. So yeah, and, and I, but I think you guys did a great job of making it you know both secure and easy. Like, and I think that that's an approach that a lot of times needs more first principles thinking for product teams and engineers to make sure that they're, you know, trying to solve both the security and the ease of use problem. So, yeah, at the end of the day, though, it was like organizations weren't going to change their policies just for us. And we didn't want to wait decades for that to happen if it was ever going to happen. And like I was saying today, it's more important than ever. It's more difficult than ever to properly secure your application. And so, it makes absolute sense to me that companies want to install software behind their own in their own infrastructure with their own security and their, and, but, and then they still get to use those products and so that's that's why we deliver that as a as a product we certainly didn't have to we could have had github be saas forever and it would have been profitable and it would have been great but it would have really excluded a large number of developers and that was not acceptable to us yeah and i, I think someone you know released some numbers maybe a year or two ago when GitHub was at you know over 100 million in run rate, and 
the enterprise product was contributing to more than half of the revenue. So it also breaches a lot of developers and contributes a lot of the non-dilutive funding for building even better software for you know the next generation. So yeah, it's a big part of the business. Yeah. I'm I'm glad that we did it. It was it was painful, a learning process, but you know we delivered a good product to to customers, and I think that's at the end of the day, that's what we've always wanted to do. Right, and so beyond just like the you know the on-prem stuff, I think we hit a lot of really important pieces around sort of how you did things like audit logging, right, or some of the permissioning and role-based access control. But one thing that I'm always interested, just in general, is how do you think about introducing a new feature? Like you know, we talked about discovery a little bit. And you said you weren't always involved in that, but if we think about introducing and rolling out a feature. Were you doing alpha and beta and GA? Like, how would you get the first users to try out, you know, whatever new sort of enterprise feature you were you were launching? And then, how would you communicate that even through like your, you know, from product to engineering to sales to marketing? You know, the whole chain of people that have to be aware of the new products you're releasing. Are you talking about enterprise features specifically, stuff like audit logging or log management, stuff like that? I mean, you can go through any you know feature release. I think that the the process, assuming, is probably fairly similar in terms of new things you were rolling out. But yeah, whatever comes to mind. Yeah. So I mean, any any non enterprise specific features was easy because they'd go through the SaaS product first. We'd build them. We would use them internally. We always had feature flags where we could say, "Staff sees this." So when we'd start building new features. Even something as extreme as like an issues, a new version of the issues system, as soon as it was usable at all, that we could use it ourselves daily, we switched everyone in the company to start using it so that we would have to experience it ourselves and find any bugs that way. And, and we would know immediately what worked and what didn't uh, with that new design. And so those were easy. We did those for ourselves. We beta tested them ourselves because we were the customer and there was a lot of us. And so we didn't do, we don't, we never really did alphas for, or betas or anything for main product features. We just experienced them ourselves until we were, we thought that they were good enough for general population. And then we would release them to everyone. I, I mean, I would, I would kind of refer that to that. Like, since you're feature flagging it and using it internally, I define that as an alpha personally. So that's, you know, when you're, when your company is using the feature and testing it out and, and using it in some type of workflow. Generally, I would think about a beta as you feature flagging it on for a few early customers. But it sounds like you went from alpha to GA, oftentimes in the SaaS product. Yeah, we did. That's the way we did it for many years. We did eventually become more sophisticated, and we would roll. We would start rolling out some features to small portions of a population. So we had a we had some code in there, a tool that would allow us to select a certain percentage of users and then give them a new feature and see how it went. Usually this was important for scalability concerns. New code, the one thing that we couldn't test by ourselves was how this would perform when used by the entire population of GitHub users. And so we would start rolling it out to small percentages, 3%, 5%, 10%, and keep an eye on the database and see what was happening. Make sure there weren't any slow queries and stuff like that. These are things that matter when you're talking about a SaaS product at scale. Things that tend to matter less when you're talking about an enterprise installation where you usually have fewer than millions of people trying to use something. Sure. The scale of your SaaS product is always larger than the scale of any enterprise instance. Right. But that's a nice way to build something. You know that whatever you deliver to the enterprise is going to be sufficiently performant enough to solve their needs because it's performant enough to solve the needs of of a much larger user base, depending on what kind of installation, what kind of hardware that company is running it on. But at least they know that they could service as many users as they want in their organization if they add a sufficient number of servers to do it. So that was kind of how we did it for the SaaS model. And then we would wait some amount of time, and those features would all get bundled together and become a release of enterprise. And then it, everything had already been alpha tested and then tested in reality by the entire GitHub user base before they would make it into an enterprise installation. And so there was usually four months between, it'd be, it'd be three or four months between when we would roll a new installation and make that available for people to, for enterprise customers to download and, and install in their 
own enterprises. That's cool. So you were using that SaaS group as a, as a way to validate and test the features, the new things you're releasing, make sure they were really production ready and then distribute them to the enterprise. Yeah, I think it's a great way to do it. It really battle tests new features so that when they make it to the enterprise, you're pretty sure that you're not going to completely screw up their day. Because this is another big concern of enterprises is, one, they want to know when stuff is going to change. Like if you go and you completely change how issues work, which we did several times, then they don't want to be subject to your timeline where you're like, all right, issues is shipping tomorrow. Good luck, everyone. They want to be able to say, look, we have important processes built around this within our company. We cannot tolerate those changing at all unless we say they change. So they would often want more time to accommodate a situation like that. This is not to say that they weren't willing to to use new stuff. They didn't want new stuff. It was more that they just needed that to be able to happen on their timeline, something that you can't offer nearly as easily to your SaaS customers because it's the software. Like it's it's gonna roll out. And unless you're willing to build in both the old version working and the new version working, which generally we were not because we we valued moving quickly over full backwards forever compatibility for most features. And in general, they were, you could still solve the same exact problems. But you know, every once in a while we'd have to remove something like we removed being able to thumbs up issues or something. And it caused people a lot of consternation because that was something that some people used. But we looked at the numbers and it was like 2% of people were using it. It just wasn't sufficient to warrant leaving that feature in at the expense of making the product more complicated. And we came up with better ways to do it in the future anyway. But that's another story. Yeah, no. So I love this this concept you're talking about now because it, it addresses something that I think is often ignored, which is really change management, right? So this is a huge, huge concern for enterprises because, like you mentioned, they have workflows and processes built around certain features. And if you change something, it could, one, break that process or that workflow. And two, if you change something, oftentimes they need to train the people who are using the software on the latest updates, right? Like they have an extensive process for you know bringing people on board with how something works. And if you're going to roll out something different, you know, like humans don't love change in general. So it's good to provide them with the runway and the tooling and the collateral to actually propagate that change through their organization. Yeah, that's a that's a, an excellent point and completely true. The needs of enterprises are drastically different from those of a smaller organization where like if something changes in, in an app, it's like, okay, well, we got two people that deal with that and, and they'll just, you know, they can come to grips with it. But when you've got 10,000 people across all manner of, locations and trainings and whatever like this is a different story this is something that that has to be managed actively yeah your training materials for your new employees that are coming on next week have all of the you know old processes in it and you just roll out a new change it's like no they need to go through and like you know update all the materials and everything else that you're delivering for training and you know it's, it's i think the thing that people don't often recognize and the reason that change management is so important is communication within enterprises you know, it's just why there's hierarchy oftentimes is because it's just so hard to communicate something to everyone. And so you kind of rely on this like top down, bottom up communication flow where people are meeting regularly and delivering, you know, hey, here's the newest thing. Because when you're trying to tell something to 20,000 people, like that's a that's just a hard thing to do. Yeah, it's, it's about predictability, like all of their supply chains, like everything that they do has to line up properly in these large organizations. And if you throw a, a wrench into their system, one thing's going to get slower, and now that thing's not going to be done when this other thing is done. And so it's just, it's, it, it is exactly that. It's this communication issue. The synchronization of all the pieces needs to run properly. And if you go changing stuff underneath them, they don't have time to prepare, and so they can't, they can't predict. So they need predictability. You, you give them a new version, you say, hey, here's the features in this version, and you can have them whenever you want. It's up to you. Yeah, and so I think this is also really interesting to bring up. I mean, you're the, you created the concept of Semver, right? And you know, Semver can be seen, you know, the versioning concept can be seen as a change management thing. It communicates the different changes that are happening in software through like a consistent pattern. So, like one, like how did you come up with Semver? What was the problem that you were facing? Maybe even talk a little bit about Semver for those who aren't super familiar with it. 
Yeah, so SEMVER is short for semantic versioning. It's a way of codifying a pattern that people were already using, which was like major version, minor version, patch version, right? 1.2.4, whatever a version might be for a piece of software. When I was working at a company called PowerSet, we we created like this super repository of every piece of software that we used. And we kind of made our own packaging system that would allow any package, even across different languages, right? So you could have a Ruby package that depended on a C library that and the Python library that required, you know, that depended on a specific Ruby version. And it was really cool, but it had a weakness where if you over-specified your dependencies, then anytime you wanted to upgrade something, then you'd have to you'd have to deal with that all the way downstream. Like every piece of software that relied on that now it might be requiring a previous version. And then what happens if you require two libraries, one which requires version 3.4 of something only, and another one that requires absolutely 3.5 and you're completely screwed now you can't like it can't be done and so i remember it being a huge problem there and later on i don't even remember specifically why i sat down and wrote it out but it, it just seemed silly to me that a bunch of different software like programming languages were using different ways of specifying versions it seemed like hey this is all the same stuff libraries of software why is there not a consistent scheme behind it and there was just no there was just no consensus. So I, I sat down and I wrote it out because I was frustrated by it not existing and saying, look, this stuff already exists. Let's just give it a name that's not too specific and try to convey meaning with these version numbers in a way that everyone can agree on. And that way you can say that I'm happy to use version 3.4 up to version 4 of something because I know that a minor version is only going to add features. It's not going to. It's not going to break backwards compatibility. And if we can all agree on that, then you can create software like dependencies. When you say what versions you want, you can be comfortable saying, "I'm okay up to version 4.0, 3.5, 3.6, 3.7, whatever. I don't care because I know it's all backwards compatible." And until you all agree that that's okay and that that's what those numbers mean, then really all you can ever do is say, "I want." specifically version 3.4 and nothing else. That would be the only rational choice. And so it was my attempt to name something and define it, which is which I've done several times. And it's <laughs> turns out to be really valuable. Like often we don't have agreement on things. And I've been lucky enough that this has actually worked. I think the danger of doing this, and people always joke about it, is well, you used to have 10 versions of how to do something, 10 ways to do something, and, and now you've just created an 11th. So I don't know. I love doing it, though. <laughs> I mean, when the 11th is the most obvious and best way and you help standardize and define it, I think it's it's a really valuable contribution. So it, you're right. There's always a risk, right, that you don't want to just be the 11th. Yeah, but I don't, I don't think there's even a problem, honestly, with being 11 or 100 or 1,000. Because at the end of the day, you're exploring the space. Like everyone who's working on something is exploring the space of possibilities. And down the road, 999 of those won't exist anymore. And people will have chosen the one that worked the best. Like this is, you see this over and over in languages. And you're seeing it a lot in JavaScript right now, for instance. There's like a million ways to do everything. And that's because we're on the, the bleeding edge of a JavaScript renaissance. And you see that anytime a new language becomes really popular, it happened in Ruby, right? There was a time early in like when Rails came about, it was like, oh shit, Ruby's amazing. Now we need libraries for everything. And there was like a million libraries to do everything and, and so many options. And it was like, how do you do any of this stuff? There's, there's so much choice. It's, this is like next level in JavaScript. But you can see in Node, so Node uses Semver. They use it, they, it's built into NPM. It's like the way that you do things. And I think it's the only way that NPM has become as successful as it has because people can finally rely on what versions mean. And it's not perfect, obviously. There's ways to introduce breaking changes in minor versions. It's going to happen from time to time. But at least when people do their best to accommodate the rules, then you can do you can do things that you were never able to do before. You can have the kind of flexibility that allows you to rely on a set of packages in a much cleaner and a much more flexible way. Yeah, I love that. I also just love the the idea of like freeing people from the like risk of being the eleventh. Right? It's like, look, it's an early market. People will create 
their opinion and share their perspective on like what it should be doing. And you should do the same thing. And like, if you're right, like over time it will win. And if you're wrong, like you still contributed something to the global effort towards this because somebody else might see the thing that you develop and you release and that might influence the actually correct decision. So, you know, it's a net gain for society if we all kind of contribute these things more freely and with a little less concern for like, oh, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be the 11th. And that's, I I love that perspective. Yeah. You know, we wouldn't have a lot of things that we have today if someone hadn't made that 11th thing, you know, think of, think of something like the iPhone. How many cell phones were there before the iPhone came out? It doesn't matter where you are in the timeline of something. If you have a better idea, put it out there and see what happens. Like, why would you ever tell someone to not do something? I don't know. It just, it doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. I mean, that's the first principles thinking. So uh, one other thing I wanted to bring up before we get off of sort of change management in general is something I hinted at before, which is how to organize your code base for doing a SaaS version and an enterprise version. And so this is an interesting story. Early on at GitHub, when we started doing GitHub Enterprise or GitHub FI at the time, we were faced with a choice. And that choice is, is one that everyone's faced with, which is, do we create a fork of our repository and build enterprise features there because we don't need them in the SaaS product. So let's not complicate the SaaS product with them. And so we'll build those features in in the enterprise model only, and then we'll port all of the new stuff from the SaaS model into the enterprise code base, right? Because Git can do that. It's, It's good at merging stuff, right? So that's what we did. We had a separate repository. We forked off GitHub dot com SaaS model repository and new enterprise features went in there and and we you know we we hired a person specifically to do this like merge process which was a thankless horrible task and we did it for a while and it was just extremely slow and merging is not amazing ever really like if you have conflicts it's a nightmare it's a never ending nightmare and so whenever anyone asks me now I say please for the love of all that is good in programming, do not make a second repository and try to merge upstream stuff into it. If you have a product of any complexity, it's a nightmare. And not only that, it removes the need for your SaaS developers to think about what enterprise customers need because they don't see it. And so this was a problem as well. When you didn't have the enterprise stuff. like There could be things in the product itself and the normal parts of the product that weren't just ops things. There could be flags in there. Even stuff as simple as the header in enterprise was black, just so you would know that this was not github.com if you were using both. Because a lot of people that are in the enterprise are using an enterprise installation. They're using github.com for open source, whatever. They need to know very specifically which one they're on. So the header was always black in GitHub Enterprise. So they could they could know which one they were on. It was wearing a suit, right? Right, yeah, ex- exactly. <laughs> business, it's business time. And so the problem with that was, though, that the logic for that was in Enterprise only. And so if someone went in and they needed to make a change to the header in GitHub.com, they'd do that. And then it would, you know, the person who had to merge that into GitHub Enterprise would then be like, oh, fantastic. Someone made a change in the header. Let me go read that code. I'll spend a day doing that, figure out what it affects, figure out you know the 17 files that I need to now fix conflicts in and make this stuff not all break. It just it doesn't work. And so we changed to a single repository, which has the benefit of, number one, you don't have to merge stuff anymore. You don't have conflicts anymore. Fixing conflicts is, is the biggest waste of time. Like if you spend almost any time fixing conflicts in merges, you're doing something very wrong. It's just the least effective way to spend time. And it's extremely error prone. Like you have to do it very carefully. It's a nightmare. I think every developer probably knows this if they've ever had to deal with a conflict in code before. So we really wanted to optimize to remove dealing with conflicts. So that was one big win. The other big win was. All of the conditional code, and there was a lot of it, was there in its full glory for every developer to see. And this, while on its head, seems frustrating, where it's like, ugh, I'm a, I'm a SaaS developer. Why do I got to deal with all this enterprise conditional stuff? 
that attitude is wrong and toxic. It's really important, and I tried to make this really important at GitHub, that enterprise customers were valuable, that these are also these are developers. They just happen to be in the context of an enterprise, but we are building products for both of these people. And so this product needs to be considered by all developers. That like it, it can't be just SaaS developers and just enterprise developers. Everyone has to be both, really. And so we tried to do that, where some people would work on enterprise features, but SaaS people were also working on enterprise because they'd go in there, and if they needed to change something in the header, they saw the conditional. They saw where it forked off to make it enterprise-specific, and now they had to contemplate that when they made those changes, which made the product better for everyone. They just they thought from a larger perspective, the perspective of the whole company, not just a portion of the company. Yeah, that's super important. And I think it's even become more important in today's age. And, and we think about not just unifying the code base, but actually unifying the ops model and sort of how do you, you know, orchestrate and schedule your application both in the cloud and on-prem. And, and a lot of the stuff that's happening in the, in the world of you know, Kubernetes is really enabling that to happen more and more. So it's still a challenge and it's, uh, and it's still super important. I agree. So Tom, after GitHub, you started a new company that I think is really exciting and, and I've been able to, to watch grow and as, as you've built, but it's in a totally different space. And I'm just looking to understand a little bit more about what it is, what it's doing and sort of why you're building it. So I'd love to hear your perspective on, on what Chatterbug is and, and what's so exciting about it. Yeah, so the company's called Chatterbug and Chatterbug is a better way to learn foreign languages. So as you said, it's in a completely different space then GitHub has completely different customers. But this is really something that I love. I love building new products for new people and learning what it takes to do that. You know, this is a broader customer base. This is a consumer product versus something that's for a more niche set of people, just developers. And, and so the reason that Chatterbug is different is a couple of ways. So let's say you want to learn German, you want to learn Spanish. We have both of those curriculum available on Chatterbug right now. What's different from other offerings is that it's really a comprehensive way to learn a new language. So we found that the best way to learn a new language is by practicing the things that you're going to be doing. It seems maybe obvious, but actually most people don't do this. So with Chatterbug, there's two parts. One part is self-study that you do on the computer. You do things like flashcards. You do things like readings, reading passages of text in the, in the language that you're learning. Maybe a little bit of journaling, watching videos, listening to some audio. And we keep track of everything that you do. Everything that you do ends up in the system and is, starts to become customized to how you are learning. So the amount of repetition that we do is all handled intelligently behind the system. You don't have to do anything. You just show up, you do the work, and we handle the rest. And in alternation with the self-study, we offer what are called live lessons. And those are 45-minute long live video chat with someone who is native or fluent in the language that you're learning. So the cadence really goes, do some self-study, learn some words, learn some grammar, all arranged around sort of specific topics as you go through the curriculum. And when you've done a little bit of that, then it's time for a live lesson. So you schedule one. You get on a call with a native speaker, and you start doing exercises based around what you already know from the self-study. And those live lessons are, uh, we call the people that you're doing with them tutors as opposed to teachers because they're really helping you do it. They're not teaching you so much as they are helping you understand the language more naturally through natural interaction and asking questions. But there's always a visual aid that you're looking at when you're in a live lesson and you're working on something together. So you might see a map of a city and you might have to figure out how to go from point A to point B or ask someone, hey, where is the closest supermarket? These would be the kind of tasks that you do with your tutor, and you would be in a dialogue with that person throughout the course of this live lesson. And you find that you get good at the things that you practice. And so if you practice speaking a language, then you become good at speaking a language. This is something that, that most 
mobile apps, mobile learning, uh, language learning apps don't do well right now. Uh, and so you can spend thousands of hours learning vocabulary, but if you never practice speaking and you show up to a country where they speak the language that you're learning, you might find yourself completely incapable of speaking that language or understanding that language because you haven't practiced those. And so you get into this really natural cadence back and forth between doing some self-study and we have a mobile app. You can do it on your phone. You can do it on your computer, on your iPad, whatever you have. You can do it wherever you are. And then uh, let's say two times a week you want to do a live lesson. Then you just show up at the scheduled time and uh, we have a tutor waiting for you. Part of the magic is we use multiple tutors. So you're not locked into any specific single tutor this makes it really flexible scheduling-wise. If you only have one tutor that you're working with, when they go on vacation, you're not doing any lessons. And so over time, you can build up a pool of tutors that you really like, and you have the ability to favorite tutors or block tutors if you don't find them suitable for your learning style. And then every time that you show up for a live lesson, you know that you're going to get someone, and you're going to get someone that you probably really enjoy doing this work with. It also gives you much better exposure to different accents, people from different regions, people that use slightly different vocabulary. It's all just better from a preparation perspective. On the flip side, a chatterbug is finally an answer to a question that I've asked for many years and never had a suitable answer to, and that is, how can you make money on the internet as a person who is unskilled in any particular specific thing? And I've had many people ask me this question. They're like, you're good at computers. You know about the internet and stuff. It seems like with the internet, you have access to a global economy, millions, billions of people. And so it seems like there should be a way for someone who's in maybe a, a remote location or just otherwise doesn't have a lot of opportunities. How can they make money on the internet? And I've always had a really hard time answering that question. I just can't think of much to tell them which to me is absurd. It's absurd that, that, that I can't answer that question well. And so Chatterbug can finally be that because what's one valuable skill that everyone already has and has tens of thousands of hours of practice doing, and that's to speak their native language. And there's a lot of people around the world that want to speak that language. So let's help connect them by building a platform where anyone can become an effective language tutor if we provide the curriculum and we provide the tooling and we provide the support and we provide some training to understand how to use the system, someone with no expertise in language instruction can become an incredibly effective tutor on Chatterbug. So this is also a way to answer that question. Anyone living anywhere that knows a language that someone else wants to learn can make money on the internet using Chatterbug. So that's a little summary of what I've been up to. That's amazing. I really do love that mission too. I think that perspective, like that was your first principles on this, right? To solve that problem. Yeah, it's what you know made me join is that it had that aspect. It had this answer to something that I was mulling over while I was thinking about what I wanted to work on next. It's really cool. I'm excited for the future of it. I hope that uh, you keep pushing on it and, and keep going forward because I'm sure that the world needs it. And so they, they need you to, to make it a reality. So Yeah, we're cranking on it. Okay, Tom, thanks so much for your time today. I really, really appreciate it. It's been amazing chatting with you. I'm sure that everyone listening is going to appreciate your thoughts and feedback on you know, how to think about enterprise software and how to deliver that. Thank you. I had a good time chatting and I hope uh, this information has been useful to your listeners. That's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just to learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit heavybit.com to check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders.